Would you please join me as I pray? Gracious God and Father, we rejoice that you are a God who fights for your people. You see us, you tend to us. You have all power and all might, and you're marked by compassion and tenderness, an eye towards the weak and the needy. And in that space, what we recognize is that you are a God who historically, who biblically, who today all around the globe and in our own stories personally, you are a God who fights for your people. And we are grateful for that. I pray that you would teach us this morning to be the sorts of people that know how to celebrate, know how to pause and to pay attention when victory shows up, when when moments of breakthrough show up, that we wouldn't run past them, but that we would be the sorts of people that that sing out. So you continue to, to teach us and shape us as a family, to be a family of worshipers. Use your word open before us to lead us into that space. We ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There's something that is widely studied in psychological circles called the negativity bias. Have you ever heard of this? The negativity bias. It is this idea that as human beings, we are tempted always to have the hard things stick more deeply, more truly. You could, you could have a good day with a friend where you have lots of fun and celebration and good things, but one hard comment, one difficult experience, and all of a sudden you're left rehearsing the negative feelings that came out of what was otherwise a really positive day. We are a people that are tempted, even in a flood of positive realities, to focus on the negative. It's called the negativity bias. It's been studied and written about at length. There's a guy named Dr. Yeager at Ohio State. He leads something called the Stress, Trauma, and Resilience Institute. What a name, the Star Institute. And uh, he says that one of the ways that people who've dealt with hard things can begin to rewire their, their minds, their brains, their actual neural pathways is he says that we need to be the sorts of people that actively pay attention to the positive and learn how to celebrate and rehearse it. He says it's one of the ways that we can counteract what has become a psychological norm for humanity known as the negativity bias. I think in part, this psychological research, this, this temptation of what it means to be human, to focus on what is negative and hard, I think in many ways, what we're gonna talk about this morning from Judges 5 is a divine tool to reorder our hearts to be the sorts of people marked by joy and celebration for all that God is doing rather than the sorts of people that are constantly focusing on and spiraling into the negative and challenging pieces of life. You see, we're the sorts of people, if we're not careful, that are moving so fast that we don't have time to celebrate the things that are worthy of celebration. I'm reminded of reading an article about the, the famous college football coach, Nick Saban, a, a journalist got to travel with Alabama and he was flying home with Saban and the team the morning after winning a national championship several years back. And he said that I, I was sitting next to Saban on the plane and he flipped open his notebooks and was madly working through all of this data. And I asked him, 
Coach Saban, what are, you, what are you doing? He says, I'm working on recruitment and the plan for next year. And he said, you, you know you won a national championship last night, right? And he was like, yeah. And now I got to start preparing for the next one. And the journalist was making the comment of like, how surprising that even in the moment of the greatest victory in, in, a, in a coach's career, that there wasn't the space to just pause, to celebrate, to enjoy. Perhaps an extreme example, but I've found that the same is true for me, that oftentimes I run right past moments of victory and joy because I'm either focused on the negative or preparing for the next thing that I feel like I need to accomplish. The invitation of Judges 5 is this, don't rush past the God-given victories in your life. Memorialize them, celebrate them. Pay attention that God is fighting for you. He has shown up in your story in all sorts of ways and the invitation is to reject the negativity bias, to be the sorts of men and women that slow down and say, oh, this, this is a moment worthy of of celebration, of paying attention, of singing out. You see, we've been on this, this journey of worship and we've talked about how worship and the life of the Christian serves all sorts of purposes. It causes the enemy to scatter. It causes the spirit to hover. We've talked about how it helps us to, to wade into battle and to secure real victory. And this week, in the wake of all of those truths, what we're paying attention to is this, when victory arises, worship, celebration, it is, it is a tool to slow down and to, to pay attention to what God has done. And so we're going to be talking about what does it look like to, to sing out and to celebrate victory this morning. We're going to trace Judges chapter 5 as we do that, a song that is sung in the wake of a grand victory. Now, just one disclaimer at the outset. I recognize that we're not all songwriters, okay? So we're talking about paying attention to and memorializing moments of victory in our own life. In part, that's going to mean truly gathering together and singing victorious songs. So that's one implication that we're going to be working. I think another that I'm going to be kind of pressing on us as we work through this text is, is pausing and paying attention, even if it's jotting down, writing out things. Uh, if it looks more like journaling that leads to us singing the sorts of songs that we ought to sing, or writing down things that may end up sounding poetic. They might be our own private songs. I want us to think about being the sorts of people, whether we're songwriters or not, that are paying attention to the divine victories in our life and learning how to celebrate them and to celebrate them in a way that catapults us into worship. You with me? Okay, Judges chapter five. How do we learn to be the sorts of people that sing the songs of victory? The first note is this, when should we be singing the songs of victory? When should we sing the songs of victory? We should sing songs of victory right away. When moments of breakthrough or joy show up in our life, we shouldn't let them pass by. We should stop right away and memorialize and celebrate them. I wanna show you the way that Deborah, the great judge from the book of Judges in chapter five does this. And I just wanna show you, just verse one, we see it right off. It says this, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam on that day. You could underline then and that day. If you were in house church this past week, you got to chew on Judges four and five, which these are some intense chapters, some intense texts. The, the context of this song that is erupting for Deborah and Barak is this. 
The people of Israel in the season of the judges, they've come into the promised land, but there are no kings in the land yet. It's a tough time in Israel. And right now, in this particular moment, they have just gone through 20 years of oppression from the Canaanites. A king and his commander have been oppressing them for two decades in a way that has demoralized the people of God. And in Judges chapter four, God has brought the most unexpected and delightful victory over this really oppressive Canaanite enemy. And it says in verse one of chapter five, right there on that day when victory showed up, Deborah said, it's time for all of us to sing a song. She pauses and she writes a song. We've been tracing what it looks like to be the worshiping people of God and over and over it feels like this is not the sort of time we would usually strike up the band and have a, have a worship service. Right in the wake of a grand battle, what she is saying is no, no, now is the time to sing. Now is the time to celebrate because the mercies are still fresh and the details are still vivid. We want to worship in the midst of all that God has done. This is similar to Exodus chapter 15. You may remember when the people came through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was decimated by God as the waters closed in on them. Right there when they were on the shore, they began to sing the song of Moses. If, you, if you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible, we love that around here with our kids' ministry, and I've read it frequently to my kids. There's like this really gruesome picture in the Jesus Storybook Bible that when you pause and consider, you're like, whoa, this is, this is a little uncomfortable. But I think it's intended to be. The picture is after the people of God are delivered through the Red Sea, there's this picture, and they're standing on the seashore, and they're all dancing, holding tambourines, and the horses' hooves of the Egyptian soldiers are bobbing in the water and the helmets of the enemy soldiers are in the water. And, and that's exactly what the picture was. God just conquered an enemy that was surely going to destroy us. And so even in this children's Bible, it's this picture of like, look, there they are, conquered, vanquished. Right now, let's sing while all of the emotion and the experience and the details are still vivid and present to us. I don't know what the moments of divine victory in your life looks like. What I know is that if you've ended up here with a heart full of worship for King Jesus, you've got them. You've got lots of them. Some of them you've noticed. Many, if you're like me, you've passed right by. But the invitation is that when they show up, the big ones where light breaks through into darkness, where you're called out of the grave of your past addiction and sadness and brokenness, the places where relationships begin to be mended or restored, the place where you've longed for that thing that you've prayed for for a long time and God shows up and he just acts. You get the job offer, you meet the person, you're restored to that parent that you've been at odds with for years. The invitation is in those moments of divine healing that we would pause and go, maybe just maybe, I don't need to rush past this, but I need to sit down while the details are vivid and write it out. I need to sing to God about it because this is worthy of celebration. When do we sing the songs of celebration and victory right away, right away while the details are vivid and the mercies are fresh. The second thing about singing the victory song is this, who sings the victory songs? Who sings them? And, and I think it's important to note that moments of deliverance, moments where God shows up and acts in our story, it's not just for us. 
It's for everyone's hearts to be emboldened, for faith to grow. Deborah and Barak write a song and they invite everybody from all across the kingdom to sing it. Look in verses three and verse 10 and 11, the way that a song folds all sorts of people in from different backgrounds and different backdrops. Verse three says, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Here they're calling royalty to the song. Kings and princes, this song's gonna be good for your hearts. Verse 10 and 11, tell of it you who ride on white donkeys and you who sit on rich carpets. That's the wealthy who are traveling on white donkeys with rich saddles. They've got this kind of beautiful situation. And he says, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Part of the value of the victory song is that it invites everybody in to see what God has done. Music does this in part. It cuts through all of the kind of things that could separate us. There's, there's joy in corporate worship because the song unites the hearts of people that have very different backstories and very different histories. We come together and go, ah, we together can lift our voices in victory. We can be the sorts of people that spend time and energy celebrating the goodness of God to counteract all of the negativity that we're tempted to drag around with us. Songs cut across that against our backdrop. And your particular song of deliverance is not just for you. Psalm 40 verse nine and 10 says that when I was delivered, I didn't keep my lips quiet. I sang out for the benefit of the congregation. I told the congregation of how God had delivered me. Listen, the ways that God has particularly showed up in your story in the darkest moments, that's a gift. It's a gift to be shared with your house church, with your community. It's a gift to be shared in all of the vivid detail the fresh mercies of God. When we live as a people that don't rush past those moments of breakthrough, but we celebrate them, everyone's faith is built. The rich and the poor, the strong and the weak are all together beginning to go, ah, victory, blessing, celebration. It's counteracting the negative kind of temptations of our soul to see the beauties of God when we're a people who know how to celebrate. When do we celebrate? Right away. Who does it? Everyone is invited. Your moments of delivery are for the good of this whole community. Don't sit on it. Don't hide it. Make it known. Third, why do we sing victory songs? There's a, there's a long list of reasons. There's even several reasons in this text. I just want to draw one particular one out. Why do we sing songs of victory? To help us remember just how dark it was because we're tempted when we don't celebrate. Part of it is because we don't want to deal with how hard it was. And so it, it robs us both of the high notes and it, it minimizes the dark ones and we just stay right in the middle and we miss all that God has for us. But when we sing a victory, it helps us remember, oh, I needed rescue. And it was dark and it was challenging. And as we sing those songs, it causes our hearts to soar and to celebrate. Let me. Let me see if I can show it to you in this text. Look at verse six and seven first off. It says this, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. 
the villagers ceased in Israel. So Deborah is pinning this song along with her co-writer Barak. Although let's just be clear, I think Deborah basically wrote it and she's being generous to include this guy. Very quickly, she starts speaking in the first person singular. It's written in the feminine. Like she's including him because he was there and she's gracious, but this was really the victory that she secured and it seems that this was the song she wrote. So I'm gonna try to give credit where credit is due. Um, As Deborah is writing this song, what she is saying is, it used to be really hard, remember? Like victory just rushed in and we're about to have peace in the land, but let us not forget that for the last 20 years, no one traveled on the highways because when they did, they were worried that they were gonna get jumped. It was chaos. Sisera commanded that army that was oppressing us. He had 900 chariots of iron. We know from Judges chapter four, he and his men would run roughshod over us. And so all of the villagers, in fact, everybody quit living out in the land and they had to gather together and live where there were walls and protection. They had to huddle together in fear. What Deborah is saying is, do you remember? It was dark, it was difficult season. The reason we're celebrating is because we don't want to forget what we've been rescued from. It was ugly. It was so ugly that at the, at the end of the passage, just for us to feel the weight of this, in verses 28 through 30, um, this is what you have at the end of the passage. You've got the mother of, of the commander of the enemy army who's waiting, wondering if her son's going to come home, but he's been killed in battle. And this is the way that she's comforting herself while she's waiting, hoping he's gonna come home. And I just want you to feel this. This is the way that a mom thinks about her son who's been raiding and dealing with the people of Israel. It shows you just how dark it has gotten when a mother can think these things about her son and think it's a good thing. This is what she says. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera. She wailed through the lattice and she said, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? And her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Well, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Do you hear what she's saying? Her son has been long at battle and she's waiting for him to come back and wondering did something happen to him? But the way that she's comforting herself is, no, 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 he's winning great victories, he'll be home soon. And the way that this mother comforts herself about the enemy of Israel is saying, he and his friends are raping and pillaging, that's why they're not home yet, everything's just fine. Do you feel the ugliness of it? The weight of it? that their enemy was so twisted and so broken that a mom is comforting her heart by saying, well, my son's just taking his time, plundering and mistreating the women of Israel. Deborah is singing a song that is honest about how dark it's been for 20 years because the celebration is only as beautiful and rich as it is against the backdrop of what they've been rescued from. Our songs of celebration that tell our stories honestly, tell the stories honestly about what God has rescued us from, the sort of victory he has brought. It reminds us of the pain, but it shows us that the grace of God is redeeming it. It's breaking in, it's bringing a new day. Don't deny the darkness of your past. Pay attention to the way the grace of God is beginning to rework it and capture that. Capture that in vivid detail 
Spend some time with an open journal, looking back and going, ah, I remember what it felt like in those days. Those days of loneliness, those days of sinfulness and the ways that I thought what was going to bring my freedom just put me further and further in chains. But that's not my story anymore. These are the sorts of moments of celebration that Judges 5 are leading us into. Why do we sing the victory songs? To remember it was dark, but it's not anymore. God is on the move. So when do we sing right away? Who sings it for everyone? Why do we sing it? To remember that it's dark, but the grace of God is breaking in. How? How do we we sing the victory songs? Fully awake. Fully awake. Listen, we are prone to being sleepy people. Falling asleep on what's most important. The urgency and the reality and the brokenness of the world in which we live. We fall asleep to the goodness of God because we're just distracted. And I love that Deborah, in the midst of singing a victorious song on the heels of this grand movement of God, she pauses and she speaks to herself in verse 12. I want you to feel this because there's a sense in which she's saying, you have to be fully awake to sing this song in the right way. Hear it in verse 12. She says, awake. Awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Four times she's commanding herself to an activity. She's going, wake up. This is worthy of salvation. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinuam. She's saying now is the time to sing. Don't be sleepy, don't be distracted right now. Sing out. I think so often we come sluggish into the presence of God distracted by the stuff we're carrying, not realizing that the moments are precious. Uh, Some of you in our community have heard about a a friend of mine, a really dear friend of Tim Cornelson's named Brian Dunnigan, uh, 44 years old, the pastor of Highland Park Presbyterian Church in Dallas that passed away this week. Um, Brian laid down next to his wife, healthy and strong and did not wake up in the morning with his three kids down the hall from him. And uh, Tim will be there this week. He was there just a couple of weeks ago with that family and will be there this week celebrating Brian's life and mourning his loss. So we think about the realities of that. It says in Ecclesiastes that death is like the smelling salts of life. And this week as I've been praying for Brian's family and Highland Park Prez communities, they deal with this loss. I just am realizing like, listen, This is life. This is what we've got. Short and tomorrow's not guaranteed. Like as I consider the loss of Brian, I'm going, I don't don't know that when I lay down at night, I get to wake up tomorrow. Life is fleeting. This is your life. This is it. And you're not getting another one. You don't get to play replay or redo. This is it. And there's a certain sense in which Deborah in this moment is going, wake up. There's plenty to celebrate. There's plenty to sing about. Why am I just sluggishly moving through this one breath of a life that I've been given and entrusted? We want to be the sorts of people that sing victory songs fully awake to like, this is the moment. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is your gift. Steward it. Sing out. Pay attention to what God is doing. Mike Mason is one of my favorite authors. If you've hung out with me much, you've heard me talk about him. And uh, he wrote a book called Champagne for the Soul. 
And in that book, he talks about two people that walk through a field. One is walking aimlessly through a field, just kind of not paying much attention. The other spends the same amount of time in the field, walks through for, call it 15 minutes, but their purpose in being in the field is to pick blue fat flowers. So they walk around and pick one or the other. And if you ask these two people about their experience of the field after spending 15 minutes in the exact same space, one would say, well, there were, there were weeds and dirt and I stubbed my toe in a rock over there and you know, I, yeah, 15 minutes I spent in the field. That, that was my experience of it. And the other says, it was shot through with beauty, blue flowers in every direction. Look, here's a whole bundle of them that I picked. <laughs> The invitation to being the sorts of people that sing victory songs are to show up every day and recognize that you are in fields of God's mercy in every direction. It's shot through with beauty, but you've gotta be looking for it. Awake, awake and sing out. Pick and pay attention to the moments worthy of celebration and go, this is beautiful. And I'm gonna pay attention and celebrate because this is the life that I live. This is the parameters of my life. I am going to find and celebrate the divine beauty that's in every direction. This is it. Don't miss it. Wake up to the beauty that's all around you. How do we sing victory songs? We sing them when we're fully awake. It might even be that in moments in worship, when your mind is wandering, even as all around you, people are singing about a king that has conquered death, it might be that you need to physically stop and go, wake up, wake up. The God of creation has come to earth to rescue his people. I need to sing. You see, we sing the victory songs when we're fully awake. And lastly, we've talked about when and who and why and how but I wanna talk briefly before we're done about what is the content of the victory song? What is it that we're singing? Four brief notes about what we sing. The first from this text is this. We cherish unity as miraculous. Pay attention to where unity is showing up in your story and recognize that it's a miraculous gift of God. Let me show it to you first in the text. It says this in verse two and verse nine. The content of what Deborah and Barak is singing. It says that the leaders took the lead in Israel and that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Verse nine, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Part of the content of the song that Deborah is singing is the recognition that God has unified and strengthened his people. They're all working as one. The leaders are leading and the people are submitting themselves and together they are experiencing God's movement and victory. Unity, where it shows up in your life, is worthy of celebrating and I find that it's often something that I take for granted. If you think about the nature of your relationships, when things are good, we just kind of move along and go, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. When a house church is unified and marked by mutual affection, when you and your roommates or you and your spouse and your children are experiencing real unity, it's like, oh, this is a lovely gift, but quite frankly, we oftentimes don't stop and pay attention to it until there's division 
And then all of a sudden it's like top of our prayer list, like why are things so hard with me and my spouse? Or why am I not getting along with my roommates? Or why is this group at work struggling so much? And all of a sudden we feel the unrest, but, but if we're honest, we haven't been picking the blue flowers of unity along the way. We're not showing up every day and going, I love these people. And you know what, they love me. Can you believe that we get to live our lives in a web of relationships that's marked by real connection? That you would pay attention to that in your house church, in your home, that you'd pay attention in, it, in closest relationships. And where that is present, recognize that is a miraculous gift of the triune God who in and of himself is unified. And when we're participating in that, we're participating in his character. Those are beautiful blue flowers that ought to be picked and sniffed and enjoyed. We cherish unity as miraculous because that's what it is. Deborah is singing out because the people are unified. A second reality that we're very tempted to rush right past is the honest, humble celebration of how God has used you. To pay attention to like, God has used me powerfully. I think in an attempt to be humble people, which is a right and a good thing, we can too quickly deflect the moments where God has actually worked through us rather than celebrating them and going, look at what God has done. And I want you to see how, how Deborah does this honest, humble, faithful work in verse seven. I want you to feel the weight of it. Look at what she does in this song. She says, the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. What she's saying is this, and, and the story of the people of Israel bear this out. 20 years of oppression and mistreatment. No one will go out on the highways. The villagers won't, won't live out in the open space anymore. They're huddling together behind the walls. And it was the arrival of Deborah, a faithful and a strong leader that was a pivot in the national story. The history of Israel was reordered from a strong woman that was a prophetess, Judges 4 tells us. She heard from God and she spoke on God's behalf in a way that bred courage and faith in the people. And it was her presence in Israel that led to a pivot in the nation. And she doesn't go, oh no, it was nothing. What she does is she humbly names it. She goes, you know what, things were a mess until I arose and I took my place. God used me. And I, I just want us to, to, for a moment, pause and be able to allow what God has done in our story and the way it's impacted others to stir our hearts with affection for God and worship for God. In the book of Revelation, what we learn is that saints in the presence of God will be given golden crowns, bejeweled crowns for their faith and their action in the world. You will be honored for the ways that you have represented God well in this lifetime. And then I love that those golden crowns that are placed on your head become your ammunition for praise of Jesus. You throw them back at his feet, we're told in the book of Revelation, that we all go, and it was all yours all along. But our ammunition for praise is actually the reception of, yeah, God used me in that. It's amazing. And then we immediately come and we throw it back at the feet of Jesus and go, I can't believe that you let me participate in what you're doing. So friends, where you have been praying for a non-Christian friend and been courageous in sharing the gospel with them and you're watching them come alive to the joy of Jesus, don't deflect. 
that, oh, no, 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 it was nothing. God did it all. We know God did it all. But there's, there's some beauty to go, God, I can't believe that you let me be a part of this, that you used my courage and faithfulness in this way, that you've helped me relieve the poverty and brokenness in this situation. You've helped me that own it. Some of your victorious songs need to be you pausing and writing out the ways that you've seen God use you and then celebrate his grace in your life that that's the case. Two final ones. What do we sing about? We celebrate how God has used others. Not just how he's used us, but how he's used others. In verses 13 through 15, Deborah pays attention and she gives a roll call of all the faithful that have been a part of the victories that she and the people are tasting. She says, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak. Skipping down uh, to verse 18, it says, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too on the heights of the field. You see, there's this beautiful celebration of the way that God is using his people. I'll tell you, one of the things, like a groundswell of praise in my heart in this season of Seven Mile Road, it's something we've prayed for as leadership for years, that we would become a, a church that sends men and women faithfully to unreached areas around the globe that we would raise up people that say, I wanna be a part of the movement of God. And right now, one of the things that we've been celebrating as a staff is it feels like a groundswell. That there's people in our community that saying, I think I'm called by God to go to a distant land so that people that are living and dying without hearing the good news of the gospel will come to know that God loves them and he sees them. We're celebrating what God's doing in Hillary, Christian and Julie Pratt, others that are saying, I think I'm called to go to really hard places and they're actively preparing that we would send them and pray for them and be a part of what God's doing there. I think these are the sorts of songs of celebration that we wanna pray of like, look, God, you're moving in our midst and you're calling people to the ends of the earth. It's also worthy to note that this song also has moments where they're singing about the people that went, oh, I don't know if I should be a part of what God's doing that as we celebrate the way that God works in others, it also calls us to account for the ways that sometimes we miss out. And even the way that Tyler was praying at the start of our service of, God, we want you to have our yes. It's not that all of you are called to go to Central Asia, but if you've said yes to Jesus, we are all called to say, Jesus, we're yours. We wanna be a part of what you're doing. And as we sing victory songs, we're celebrating the, God, the way that God is working through each other. And we're even calling ourselves to account to go, and am I a part of what you're doing? I don't want to miss out. I don't want to be like Reuben who was so caught up in his own heart that he missed the march of the people of God. You see, we celebrate the way that God has used others and we even consider the potential of us being left out when we sing these songs of victory. And lastly, you see, we're talking about how to sing these songs of victory. We sing them right away and everybody's invited and we sing them to remember the darkness of the past as God is showing up in his grace. We sing them fully awake. We sing about unity and we sing about um, 
the way that God is working in us and in others. And then lastly, what we find at the climax of this song that I wanna show you is this. We lift up the unexpected and the unique, humble hero. This is a song ultimately about a woman named Jael. She was a tent dweller among the Kenite people. And she was the one that God used to win the great victory over this oppressive army that had been working against them for 20 years. This is the way they sing about it. It's pretty gruesome. I kind of love it, (laughs) if I'm honest. I'll try to explain why, but look with me, verses 24 through 27. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water. This is Sisera, the exhausted commander, came to her tent on the run, and he came to her, and he thought that they were allies, and she said, can I have water? And she, in this moment, recognized that he was being defeated by the people of God, but she, she didn't let in on the fact that she was two against him. And so he comes and he asks for water and it says, so she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She hid him under a rug in her tent, Judges 4 tells us, and he fell asleep thinking he was safe under her care. And while she was sleeping, she came to him with a mallet and a, and a big tent peg and she drove it through his head. It says she crushed his head She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank and he fell, and he lay still. Between her feet, he sank and he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Do you hear the way that this song slows down and settles in on this moment, and it repeats it? Because the most unexpected and gruesome victory came at the hands of the most unlikely victor. She was seemingly powerless and out of the way in her tent dwelling far from all of the action. But the great enemy of God's people in a moment of courage and of gruesome reality, she takes up a hand against him and his head is crushed beneath her feet. This is how God secured the victory on the people of God. And by the time you get to verse 31, it says that the land had rest for 40 years. The victory that J.L. in that courageous moment secured. This is this beautiful two chapters of scripture where it's two strong and faithful women, Deborah and J.L., that together in their faithfulness conquered the great enemy of God's people and God ushers in tremendous rest for 40 years. And I think it's important for us not to miss the beautiful hints of the gospel and the way that this victory is secured. It was one fighting on behalf of the whole. JL, separate from the whole of the group in this moment of courage and faithfulness, a gruesome moment where the enemy's head was crushed beneath her feet. And that was how rest was secured for all the people of God for an entire generation. You see, King Jesus was one that was weak and humble and out of the way. What good could come from Nazareth? One that in a moment of courage was willing to step up and to fight our enemies, Satan and death itself. And as he was pinned to the cross and was bleeding and dying in a picture that was gruesome and dark and broken, it tells us in the text all the way back in Genesis 3 that it was through his death, it was through the seed of the woman that the the skull of the enemy was going to be crushed beneath his feet. 
You see, in, in JL, we have this beautiful picture of the way that God secures victory, and we realize that we of all people have a song to sing. We sing out, every one of us, with recognition that the backdrop is really dark. We were sinners who could not save ourselves, destined for hell. We were children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. That's what we deserved because we had disregarded God. We had disobeyed him. We had told him we were uninterested in his reign and rule, but he came for us anyway. And against the darkness of the backdrop, he has secured glorious, unexpected victory from the most unexpected of heroic kings, the one who is pinned to a tree. And what he's saying is, wake up. You have reason to sing. The darkness really is dark, but the grace of God has broken in and it's working a better story. Sing out and celebrate his grand and eternal victory. And sing out and celebrate the fact that his victory is breaking into your story over and over and over again. Let us not be the sorts of people that spiral into our negativity, that focus on the things that haven't panned out just the way we desired, but the sorts of people that walk through life aware of the mercies of God in every direction, fully awake to him, singing the songs of victory that have been secured by Jesus, our great victor. Let's pray. Uh, we have reason to sing. God, we have reason to sing. I was lost and I loved my lostness. I was in the dark and I loved the dark. My heart still in its folly at times bends back towards the darkness of my past and you and your faithfulness and your grace continue to deliver, continue to bring light and joy and unity and wholeness and for that we rejoice. I pray that even today we would speak to our own souls and say awake, awake. I pray that right now you would be speaking to our non-Christian friends in the room, our, our VIP guests in this space, and that you would speak by the power of your spirit to their hearts and say, awake. Come awake to the grace and the goodness of God that's come for you. He's come to set you free. And I pray that all of us with a single voice would sing out the songs of victory today because you are worthy of them. Jesus, you're our hero and our conquering King. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.